we'll call it today. So we're going to be in the book of the letter of Philippians, or to the Philippians, uh, from Paul. And so this is what is usually thought of as the his prison letter. So uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, they were all... They're all written from prison, most likely Rome, There's maybe Ephesus, it kind of depends, it, it's hard to date, right, he doesn't say this is where I'm writing from, right, so they have to do a lot of conjecture or, or kind of figuring things out of when they think it was written and where it places Paul, right, but either way, these are all written from prison, these next few letters we're going to be covering. <clears throat> so I titled this, Good Job, But Keep Going, right, that's kind of the message of uh, you take from Paul, he's commending them, but he's also telling them, keep going through this, all the struggles that we're having, because he's like, look, I'm in prison, and I'm still going on, right? But as you're turning there to, in your Bibles, either your physical Bibles or your phone, right, so Philippians is right after Ephesians. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a huge history buff, and, and so I have a book, and we're going to read out of it a few minutes at the end of it, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? I'm not sure if you guys have heard the name of him um so he was a pastor and a theologian and uh a german during world war ii right so on april 23rd 1945 the united states army liberated the nazi prison at flossenburg germany right and so unfortunately though for many of the prisoners ss commander heinrich himmler knew this was coming right they he knew that the Allied forces were coming into Germany. This is towards the end of the war, right? The war has a little less than a couple weeks on April 23rd. So about the beginning of April, he starts ordering all the people to be moved from Flossenburg and Buchenwald and some other places to other prison camps. So he's moving roughly 25,000 people from these places, right? So unfortunately, about 17,000 prisoners didn't even make the forced marches and then they just ended up deciding to kill a bunch of other prisoners because they were sick. The Jew, the Jews, and and whoever else they had in prison, right? Especially this prison. So I bring this up because I read this week. Well, two things. One, Friday was the Air Force's birthday, right? So 1947, right? So happy birthday, me and Patrick, for that. Uh, or as I saw one meme, it said liberation or freedom from the Army Day. Um, so that was one thing that, 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 that kind of ties in for me. The other thing is that I read an article that said a lot of the kids today think that the Jews had a part of the concentration camps and or it was made up. Right? There's people who now we are 70-ish years removed from this, this, this terrible thing that happened, and people are thinking it just didn't happen. Right? It's, it's a myth. It's a story. It's overblown. Right, whatever, right? So this is important that we keep reviewing these things, and we'll get to that, uh, why it's important of how the Nazis got into power and in one of the points, right? But, so around April 9th, though, by Himmler's special order, one of those prisoners in this, in this camp in Flossenburg, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was sentenced to death, and he was hung. So he was hung because he was... Um, he was part of the plot to kill Hitler, the, the Valkyrie. If you ever seen the movie Valkyrie, Operation Valkyrie, he was somehow a part of that. I don't, I don't remember if they tied him into the movie or not, but he was somehow involved in that, and so they knew that. So they, so Himmler had him specifically ordered to death, right? So he spent his time in prison, right? Bonhoeffer spent several years 
in prison during this this whole time during you know, World War II. Um, but he was able to preach to others. He was able to preach and bring people to Christ in this prison, this predicament that would have been a bad thing, right? So good things can happen in bad places. Right? So I don't know how many... I, I'm going through his biography by Eric Metaxas, so so there's part... I, I, haven't, I don't know if he does any numbers as far as how many people he's reached or saved or whatever, right? But, but we see that good things can happen, right? God can use the bad things for good. And so likewise, Paul was in this prison. He was also reaching out to people in, in, in these letters... Since they're all from the same place, he's dealing with the same people. He talks about the the guards. He's telling the guards the gospel. They had to stand there by his door all day long. So they have to stand there and listen to the gospel, which is pretty comical, right? So all of a sudden, you see in, in, in one of the letters, he talks about, like, look, they're getting it too. They're, they're converting. I'm converting these people because they're standing there listening, right? And so he wrote these letters to Philippi, to Ephesus, to Colossae, right, from prison, but he has these wonderful ideas, and he's he's joyful, right? Because first century prisons were not great. Now, he was probably on house arrest at this point if he's from Rome. So it's sort of comfortable maybe, right? He's not in like a cell. He's kind of in a house. So it's probably not terrible, but it's not great by any means, right? But his joyful attitude comes through in this letter that we're going to read in a minute or part of it. Right? He just keeps saying, look, be joyful, rejoice, be happy. You guys are free. To do what you want, come and move move around how you want. So be free, right? And partly he does this because that's how he is, right? He's just this happy person. It seems like no matter what he's going through, but he's also getting good news from the church. He's getting good news of Philippi and things like that. So he's like, you guys are doing it, right? So that's the good job, right? He's telling them good job. He's commanding them, but it's also, all right, keep going. You're not done yet. All right, so let's go ahead. We're going to go ahead and read Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. That kind of sets up the, the letter in itself, and then we'll cover it as we go through the points. Excuse me. Paul says, I give thanks to you, to, or I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners for, with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in, in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Right, if you guys remember the last two letters from the from the Corinthians, right? So the Corinthians were your like either very cantankerous older child who just didn't want to listen, who didn't want to do things on her own, or the only child maybe. So Philippians is probably the sweet, loving, really quote unquote perfect middle child who just does everything right and they get it all done. Like, yes, you're great, yo, I love you, you're awesome, you're doing everything right, right? And this is difference of opinions from one church to the next or not difference of opinions but it's a you see the church their personality how they act right and so paul's like yes you guys are my he doesn't say you're my favorite but he's very happy with them right and, and we see the letters from ignatius or, or polycarp to the philippians uh, roughly a hundred or so years later they're still doing the same things 
right? They're still carrying on the way they're supposed to be, you know, in, the, in this early second century. <clears throat> and so here's the main point for this, though. It's a, look for the wins in your Christian life, right? But keep striving toward Christ, right? So, so look for the things that you, we do well, that, that you do well, that the people who are brought to Christ the people that come to church, all these things that we do well in our lives, but we have to keep going. We, there's never a point where we just get to stop. We can rest, we can pause, right? But we're not like, the church will never be cool, we're done. There's enough people saved in the world, right? We're done. You know, but it's like, look, we need more. There's, we're going until Jesus comes back. We're going to preach the gospel. And so if you want a key verse in this, in this whole, this letter, I'm going to say it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And Paul says, Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I will hear that you, st you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Right? Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, in a nutshell, that is our command in a sense, right? That's that's the rule. That's the law, if you want to call it that, right? So people come to Christ or come, they don't want to come to church because they think there's a lot of rules. But really it's what glorifies Christ, what is worthy of Christ. What am I doing or am I doing that is or isn't worthy? And that question, right, kind of became what would Jesus do? That's really the question, really, is this glorifying God? Is what I'm going to do, what I'm going to watch, what I'm going to say, what am I going to listen to, where am I going to go? How am I going to act? Is this worthy of Christ? So that becomes a very easy list of things of, of what you can and can't do, but there's never a list of things you can and can't do because you're just compelled by Christ to say, that is and that isn't. Right? So that's the very easy way. Right? But here we have four things that Paul is going to talk about. So first off, Paul wants us to keep striving toward Christ with joy. Right? So Paul is overjoyed that he's sharing the gospel with people. He's sharing that with all these people, like I said, the, the guards are there. They're kind of captive audience, haha, which is kind of funny because they think he's the prisoner, but really they get to be prisoners and hear the gospel. So who, who's really the guard and the jailer? He, you know, the jailer and the prisoner, right? But he wants the whole church to be on the same page, right? He wants the church to know that the way to true joy is through humility. And so in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he, he explains what Christ did for his people. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Right? Look, I'm God. I'm part of the Godhead, but I don't, I'm not going to lord it over you or think that I don't need to do something. Right? It's, it's the same thing as, like, I'm a boss. I don't need to go do manual labor. That's a terrible attitude to have. Right? It's like, look, I'm a boss, but I'm here to help you. Right? I'm here to help you do whatever it is, right? So instead, though, instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness, likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that every name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does that really mean, right? So he, Jesus came down. He became a, a man. He was born in a manger. He was born, you know, a baby. So joy to the world. It's almost Christmas time, 
right? We get to celebrate the birth, the incarnation of, of God. And so here's the thing, right? Jesus knew what the plan was. God the Father, the Father didn't call the Son into the into the conference room one day and say, Jesus, all right, enough is enough. I need you to go down and do these things, and I'm springing this on you. I know it's a big deal, so take take a few nights to think about it. If you want to do the, if you accept this mission kind of thing, you know, mission impossible kind of thing. No, he's like, this is what it was. They already knew what the plan was from the beginning before everything happened. Right, so they knew, he knew, that he was going to come and pay for the sins of the world, right? One man dies to right or correct the sin of the other man, Adam. And so Athanasius explains that the Son is and always is equal to the Father. The exaltation is the humanity or the flesh, right? So this is Jesus' human form that gets exalted. Right? And this is the word who is immortal, right? The word, capital W, capital W word, the Logos, Jesus, who is immortal and the image of the Father has taken the form of a slave and suffered death, right? He did this in order to present himself as an offering to the Father. And Jesus has been exalted for our sake. He didn't do it for his sake to show off. He said, I'm doing this for you. Hence, all of us die in Christ and through his death may again be exalted in Christ. That is what we get. We get to be exalted in Christ once we are saved and then later when we're resurrected and glorified in heaven. Right? And it was a joy for Jesus to go to the cross for us even though it was hard and he paid with his life. Right? We know he suffered through the Garden of Gethsemane. We knew the night before he was, the night he was arrested. He wasn't a happy person necessarily, but he was overjoyed to be glorifying God with his actions. And so Bonhoeffer also paid the price, right? He died, but he didn't have to. The time World War II kicked off, Bonhoeffer was over here in America teaching in New York. And we were not yet in the war as far as America. We were not in the war yet. This is early, you know, late 30s. He could have easily stayed here and stayed out of it. But he said, no, I have family, I have friends, this is my country. I'm going to go to Germany and, and do what I can. Right? He stepped into this situation where he didn't have to. Same thing as Jesus. So he knew that he had to suffer with his people, right? And so we need to keep striving toward Christ through suffering also. So the church father Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so you can read through, especially the early church fathers, who all died. And even through, we watched the, the Puritan documentary, and there were quite a few Puritans or you know, the English Protestants who were dying because the king or the pope did not like them because they disagreed with their theology. So they burned them at stakes and they actually showed a couple places in England, still in England, on the middle of the street. There used to be a plaza or something. They said, this is the spot where this person was burned at the stake. And they actually had one place they have, they still have a stump of the, supposedly the stump of the stake where one of the martyrs died, right? So these, these men and women furthered the, furthered the church through their deaths. And so Paul was in jail, right, at this time, and he wasn't even sure if he would live. And so he says in chapter 121, right, for me to live is, is Christ and to die is gain. He's like, I'm waiting around. I might be executed tomorrow. I don't know. So I need to get all this stuff out now. Right? He never knew when he would get that call, like, Paul, come with us. Everybody knows what that means. Right? Suffering in Christ or dying in Christ is the gain. Right, One church father, Mar Marius Victorianus, says, The one who has hope in him is always alive, both now and forever. 
Therefore, persecutors achieve nothing whether they hand me over to death or to the tortures in life. Neither alternative harms me. Now, for many of the Christians, right, in the first and second century, the first two and a half centuries or so of, of the church, death, dying for your belief was a very real thing. Every Sunday morning when they would come to church, they weren't sure if they would be arrested or not for talking against the emperor or thinking, not worshiping the emperor, things like that, right? This was a very real thing for these people that were doing this. Same thing with Bonhoeffer. We'll get to it in a few minutes, but that was what was going on in Germany as well. And so, but Paul, or like Paul, they saw that worshiping Christ freely and just worshiping him openly openly was a gain either way. No matter what happens, this is what it is. Right, so now we are, we are not under that much pressure to be believers today. Yet. Right? We suffer in our own way through our lives, but we have to realize that and understand this is all for Christ. No matter what we consider suffering, one, we need to put it in the right perspective. And two, we still need to make sure that we are still going, we are going through something no matter what it is, because it's all whatever we're used to or not used to. And so as we get, we go through these sufferings, we grow. We listen and we lean. We learn to lean on God, just like the song said, right? How do I? How can I hear you through the storm, right? Well, you need to listen harder. So sometimes, if you've heard people in, a, in a, either a movie or somewhere, maybe a speech where people start talking like this, they want to tell you a story. Because all of a sudden, what do you have to do? I had to lean in. I want, I want to hear what you're saying, right? What do you? What's he? What's he talking? And so that's what it is, right? You need to hear that voice of God through, the, through any kind of noise because he's the one telling you where to go. He's the one strengthening you to endure you, right? When we have Christ, we can endure all. We can endure everything. And this isn't just some idea that's like, oh, it's easy to be a Christian when it's sunny out. It's a little harder to be a Christian when it's 30 degrees and we're, if we're sitting out here, right? And you got to bundle up. It's because Jesus is the one who strengthens you to endure Right, and that's what the real meaning of that verse of, of three thirteen or four thirteen is, and four you know, four twelve four thirteen. Right, he is strengthening you to endure through the things. It's not to get you to win a game. Right, that, that verse Philippians four twelve and thirteen get kind of used, however willy nilly, and it's sort of okay, but it's sort of not because it's like, look, this is what it means. I'm putting you in these situations to suffer, to be miserable, so you can grow. I'm putting you in these situations so you can understand what a little bit, a little bit of what I went through on the cross for you when I paid the price for you and your sins we watched a movie last night what's it called heaven's war so it's about spiritual warfare so I'll probably do a little more of it next week but one of the parts like, they're getting to the gospel presentation in the movie and Gabriel's with the, the main character in the movie and he he's taking him through and he's explaining the gospel and he touches this the, the cross a post it looks like they show a little piece of it looks like a piece of tree and they show it, they paint up and show it's a cross. But all of a sudden, when he touches it, he gets these flashes of what Jesus was was happening to him as being put on the on the cross, nailed through the hands, everything else, right? All of a sudden, he can't handle that level of pain. And it's for a few seconds, you know, he's not being hung up there and, and all the other things, right? But it's that's what that is. It's our suffering or flashes of what Jesus experienced, right? And so, so we do this, right? We we. We all of a sudden, Christ sustains us, right? So, so we understand, and no matter if you're rich or poor, as Paul says, or hungry or full, 
our contentment is in Christ. And that's the little secret that Paul talks about in chapters four, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. That's the secret. Like if somebody says, how are you so such a strong Christian? Because my strength comes from Christ, not me. Right? I don't, I'm not doing this, right? But there was another issue going around with Paul as usual, right? This is a, a familiar scene, a familiar story. He tells people to st keep striving toward Christ against false teachings. And so we hear this every letter practically, that Paul has, Paul has his enemies, and they're going around visiting churches and telling false stories about Paul. That's part of the reason he was arrested. This may be one of the reasons he was arrested here, because they were going around saying, oh, he's lying about Christianity, he's lying about Jew you need to be Jewish, you need to do these things, right? telling these stories. And so Paul says, watch out for the dogs and the ones who mutilate the flesh, or the, the, literally the cutters. And Paul wants the church that has worked so diligently to preach and live the gospel life, right? That's what he wants. So he's like, look, don't be distracted by these other stories. Don't be distracted by these things that sound mostly true, because that's usually the worst part. You can tell an outright lie, right? When Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door, you're like, if, if you press them on it, they'll, they, they have to get around to it, but it, they will tell you the half-truths because, oh, it sounds like you're Christians. No. Right? The Mormons... You know, how, how certain things work. No, we have to be aware of them and who, who's telling us what, right? But Paul wants the people to know that our goal is to know him, right? God the Son and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Because the sufferings are sometimes felt because of these false teachers trying to convince you of otherwise. And so any loss of the worldly is to be considered a gain in Christ. So if you think you can have your cake and eat it too, many, oftentimes you cannot. Right? We cannot have our cake and eat it too. Well, you can keep doing all these things that you loved, and you can still say you're a Christian. No, you can't. Because again, does it glorify God? That's the question. Is what I'm doing glorifying God? And it's simple. It's a yes or no. Because, but then it makes you look at everything else. And so Bonhoeffer was also fighting against false narratives to and to protect the ability to openly and freely preach the gospel. And so, right, and the, what this message really means for people, because in this time of World War II, this Nazi machine was spinning up, right? So how bad was it, right? Like I said, people don't believe that World War II really happened, or the, the concentration camps really happened the way they did and everything else. Um, so how bad was it? And so this is from an article from the New York Times in 2002. So the Times is, I believe, generally not conservative. They're not. No. Right? They're, they're a little bit liberal, right? So this is from them in 2002. Okay. Little. <laughs> this, this, is a bit, this has to deal with uh, released documents about how the Nazis felt about the Christian church in Europe in general, and Germany in particular, right? So, so the article is titled, and you can write this down if you want to look at it and read it. The article is titled, The Case Against the Nazis, How Hitler's Forces Planned to Destroy German Christianity. And the author is Joe Sharkey. So we'll, I have a bunch of excerpts here, and I'll, it's pretty interesting and pretty, pretty alarming for what is going on today. So it says, among a bunch of documents compiled for the trials of Nuremberg, right? So after World War II, they're compiling all the information for, for the war, trial, war trials. There was a 108-page outline titled, The Persecution of Christian Churches. 
which summarizes the Nazi plan to subvert and destroy German Christianity, which it calls an integral part of the National Socialist scheme of world conquest. Right? So it's an integral destruction of the church is integral to the Nazis becoming in power and staying in power, right? So this was because Hitler knew that although the churches were conservative, the church would never get on board with racial genocide, a foreign policy, of unlimited aggressive warfare, or with a domestic policy involving the complete subservience of church to state. So it had to be eradicated. They had to get rid of it because you're now an enemy, right? It says, well, how are we going to do that? Well, according to Balder von Schurek, the Nazi leader of the German Youth Corps, which later would become known as Hitler Youth, said the destruction of Christianity was explicitly recognized as a purpose to the National Socialist Movement. From the beginning, though, considerations of expedience made it impossible for the movement to adopt this radical stance officially until it had consolidated power. So what are they doing? They're focusing on the kids. They're focusing on the youth and talk to them about these things and get them convinced of this is the way it should be and this is the way this old way is bad, this new way is good. Right? And so, attracted by the strategic value inherent in the church's historic mission of conservative social discipline, right, the, the Nazis simply lied and made deals with the churches while planning a slow and cautious policy of gradual encroachment, encroachment to eliminate Christianity. Hitler's regime essentially took, took control of the largely government-funded Protestant churches. So, right, so the churches in Europe, in Germany at the time, especially were... They got money from the government, apparently, at least a little bit. So where the money goes, where you go, is where you go, right? If I'm controlling the money, like Mason has to listen and do chores because I pay him or we pay him. So if he wants money, he has to listen to us, right? Same thing. If you want money for your church, you got to do what I say. And they also made a deal with the Catholic Church, right? So they went to Rome to the Pope said, hey, I will give you a sweet deal. And it says all they had to do, or all it seemed Hitler was demanding to do in return was a pledge of loyalty by the clergy to the Reich government and a promise that Catholic religious instruction would emphasize the patriotic duties of the Christian citizen. No big deal, right? Romans 13, you're supposed to obey and support your government, you know, support your local, local dictator, and we'll just keep letting you live your life. But go against them, and you would be arrested, stoned, or imprisoned. So 700 Protestant pastors were taken into protective, protective custody, which is a polite term for what do you think? Sent into the concentration camps. Right? And so one of these people at some point, you know, like Bonhoeffer ended up in like Flossburg, Dachau, Buchenwald, some other ones you've probably seen, Auschwitz, wherever else. Now they had separations of prisons depending on the crimes and whatnot supposedly but you're still in a concentration camp so the churches went along with hitler's plan to get money and they were supposedly left alone but after a while it didn't work out that way right the god we serve however is bigger than just our immediate needs and we should strive to ensure that we are serving god and then the government even though a deal may seem good to us it may just be our undoing, right? So we need to be very careful of what the government says they will and won't do with regard to the church, right? And I don't know if you heard, I think John MacArthur was on earlier this week and he said, I'd be happy to go to prison. 
because we should be meeting. Right. Because they even said he couldn't have outdoor services, I believe. So I don't like to bring politics into church too often, or ever really. But this is when I read this last night, I was shocked and floored, honestly. Because if you look at it, because the government, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on, wants to use the church for their own gain. And we need to make sure that we're not useful idiots. Right? I want to make sure, I don't care how you vote, but you should vote. And you should vote to glorify God. Whatever that means. Right? We, we are in a way to do this. So, But you can see these things that the Nazi party was doing that seem to be going on in some form or fashion here today. Right? And I'm not an alarmist, but this is just history repeating itself. Right? So... We need to be alert as the church to prohibit other things from happening. And so we have to trust in God, though, in his providence that the ruler, whoever is placed over us, whether he or she, we know that that's by his hand, whether it's a reward or a punishment. Right? So we need to be aware and suffer through these things because we trust God. Because these pastors, both Catholic and Protestants, were defending the same Christ. Despite their theological differences, they were both trying to do the same thing. And so all we are, all Christians, all churches, all of us, are trying to do the same thing. And we must keep proclaiming and defending our rights to worship as God commands us. And so we have to keep striving toward Christ in spite of our disagreements. So this is talking about disagreements in the church. So Paul got word of some fighting. Some people were fighting, disagreeing about whatever. And he urged them to reconcile and work together for the fight. And more importantly, for God's glory, right? We have to keep pressing on to reach people for Christ. And so in his his letters, right, this letter, other letters, he constantly refers to the people he writes to as brothers and sisters. And even if you have the verse just as brothers, right, that means brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean just men. It means everybody. He's like, look, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? He knows he's not related to them. They're all from different places, different continents, different other religions that came into the church. But now you're one in Christ. Because we are all in Christ. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Right? He is our Savior. He has freed us from our invisible chains of sin, and he bridged the chasm between us and God. We can walk across this bridge now because we can come into his holiness because we are made holy by Christ. This is the work on the cross. And for that, we are supposed to rejoice. We should be rejoicing always in the Lord. And we rejoice together as a family of God, right? The children of the living God, the creator of the universe, and we can lean on each other. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. And see, God provides you with internal peace. So Paul tells the church, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so how happy are those people in those days and those uncertain times, right? We're just as peaceful though, right? So how many times, how many of you get up in the morning or maybe stay up later at night when everybody else is not around or goes to bed and it's super quiet? There's no dogs or cats bugging you or kids bother, you know, talking to you or asking questions or whatever, right? It's just very peaceful and calming, right? 
And that's what God has for you. He wants you to be calm. And we rejoice because we are saved from our sins that we talked about in Romans from chapters 1 through 3. And this gives us our eternal peace because now we can't take it. You can't take it away. You can't lose it. So what do we do with this though, right? So here's what we do. Here's the application. So one, the church exists for the advance of the gospel. That is our job. That is what we're here for. We're not here to come and have potlucks, although that's fun because food advances the gospel too, right? Lots of conversations to be had around food. So we use it as a tool. Does it glorify God? Yes, we have a good barbecue. We can talk to people about God over, over good food. So that's totally fine, right? That takes the whole church body. If you have, right, the, it's called the Pareto rule, if you ever heard of it, the 80-20 rule. So 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Yeah. Right? So that means you have 20% of the people doing the majority of the work, right? So one out of four people or whatever is working or roughly or so. You know, my, math, my public math is bad, right? But So if you have only a few people, that means only one or two people is working. Now, luckily, I like to brag and say we have 100%. Uh, volunteer rate for our church i put it in percentages because you guys are you guys get this part you guys understand that this is what it takes other churches now as long as you have that rolling 80 20 i don't i don't have a problem with that because not there's not enough work for everybody to do everything right but you should take turns but it takes the whole church to do this work advancing the gospel and we're all equipped so we can talk to corinthians we're all equipped differently to do the different parts so here's an important part though when we're doing this mission of advancing the gospel that god grows and we water. God is responsible for making everything grow. We just water. We are tending the garden just as Adam and Eve were intended to do. They were there in the garden to tend the garden. Everything grew because God made it grow. They were just there to kind of trim the leaves and whatnot, right? So we water by spraying the gospel around. That's how we water. So if you think of it, we have a gospel hose around there like, I'm going to spray you and, that, and God's going to let people grow. And Paul tells us then, this is number four for the application, forget what was behind and strive for what is forward, right? Verse 313. And if you look kind of the middle part of 13, so around 12 to 21, verse 21, it's kind of a nice little application piece for all this stuff. But forget what was behind you. Forget how you used to be. Don't just completely forget it, but don't dwell on it. Don't think about, oh, I used to be this terrible person. But we strive for what is for because we're working to advance, right? That's, what, that's why I wanted to use the term advance, right? Because we need to go that way. We need to go forward. We're not going backwards. And this reward that we get is God's call on your life. And that's verse 14, verse three, chapter 3, verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ, Christ Jesus. You've been called. Each of us have been called by God. To do these things to advance the gospel we've all given given gifts whatever they are to do this mission whether it's hospitality music teaching preaching hanging around opening doors being nice whatever it is that's your job that's your calling on your life and you know obviously that we get into heaven which we be, get to be closer to god all right so what happened to bonhoeffer what really happened in prison, right? So again, I said he was sentenced to death by the Gestapo because his involvement in the plot to kill Hitler, right? Again, the, the, the movie, The Valkyrie, I think it's just the Val I think it's just called Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. It was put out a couple years ago. Um, 
So what did what was what was Bonhoeffer doing in prison? So this is a, this comes from a book called Life Together, the classic exploration of faith and community by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So this is from the introduction. It says his last week. So Bonhoeffer's last weeks were spent with men and women of many nationalities: Russians, Englishmen, Frenchmen, Italians, and Germans. One of these, one of these, an English officer wrote. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. And on Sunday, April 8th, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of us all. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Right, so he, he, amen. Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Right, that's pretty jarring when you probably figure how many people you have in here. And the officer said, he goes on to say, that had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. Right, if you watch old westerns, right, they were still using gallows, so you kind of know what, what it looks like. We said goodbye to him, and he took me aside. This is the end, but for me it is the beginning of life. The next day he was hanged in Flossenburg. Right? He knew what was coming, but he didn't stop. And he said, this is the beginning of life. He's, to die is Christ, you know, to die is gain. Just like Paul. Right? And so both Paul and Bonhoeffer understood what, what it was like to be in prison, and both men eventually died while in prison. But they had the joy of Christ knowing who he is, who they served, and more importantly, just like we heard Bonhoeffer's response, they knew where they were going. Like, I'm just going from this life to this the next life. And he encouraged, you know, Bonhoeffer was preaching and encouraging others to the end. And they encourage others to view their joys and sorrows and struggles and, and, and the, the things with their new family in light of their life in Christ. Because they're new creations, right? So what lens are you viewing these things through? That's the question, right? What lens are you looking through, right? Is it all good and good when you're happy and everything's great, but then you think God must hate you when you have a little bit of struggle? No. Hopefully not, right? Thank you. <laughs> right? Are you, are you mature in your faith, right, to look... To look at the problem, look at the struggle, look at the situation and go, okay, what is, God, what is God trying to teach me? What is the lesson here? And more importantly, how can I glorify God through this situation? Right? And how can I rejoice in God always? Right? That's really the question for the week. How do you do those things? How do you glorify God and rejoice in Him always? So as we sing our last few songs, right? write about this, pray about it. Um... You know, think about these things, right? So let's go ahead and we're transitioning to the music.